0: Morning. I was like, James, get it on, all right, with this candy wrapper stuff and whatever else, because I need every single minute that I can get today. You see, that's the danger of having people preach every now and then. They have a lot of stuff to say. (laughs) And I thought, how appropriate. We're going to be talking about people who wandered for 40 years in the desert, so to give you a little bit of the sense of agony and despair, I have about an hour of preaching time for every year that they wandered in the desert. <laughs> kind of feels like a filibuster in the Texas legislation. I <laughs> didn't take my pink shoes with me today, but for uh, if you have no clue what I'm talking about, uh, it, it's in the news, so. <laughs> anyway, we, um, we have been going through the story And for those of you who are actually trying to keep up in the real Bible alongside with the story, I feel sorry for you. You had two very busy weeks. The Genesis part was easy. You know, the story of Joseph and the story of Abraham, that was easy to keep up. But now, all of a sudden, we went into the Moses story and we covered four books of the Bible in a couple of weeks. So if there are people who are actually following along chronologically with the Bible, great job, you must have had a hard two weeks. Has this ever happened to you? You are getting up out of your seat, you're grabbing your empty cup of Coke or whatever you drink, your empty box of popcorn, and you're starting to head down the exit and you expect the credits of the movie to come on. But as you look at the screen rather than the credits, a whole new scene is coming on a whole new scene is starting. That's kind of where we find ourselves in chapter six in the story right now. We have had the 10 plagues. We have the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. We had the first Passover celebration. We have had the defeat of the entire army of the Pharaoh, not by the hands of the Israelites, but by the mighty hand of God himself, We saw Israel's great sin by the erection of a golden statue, a calf to be exact. We saw its punishment, the reconciliation. We saw forgiveness. We saw the handing down of the law to the Israelites. We found ultimately God moving into his new residency, a tabernacle, right in the midst of the Israelites themselves. This chapter should be the triumphant entry into the promised land. This should be the time where they would cross another body of water which would miraculously open for them, the Jordan River. But not so. A new and unexpected chapter opens up. And to be honest with you, it's a little boring. I would say in terms of human chronology, it compares the best to people in their 20s. (laughs) You know, we have been born, we have formed our identity, we finished our education, we established our relationships, we tried everything we wanted to and many things we should not have. But we can see our lives beyond this, right? We can see marriage, we can see children, we can see career, we can see a vocation. But we don't really quite know how to get there. Any 20 year olds who feel like that, who this rings a bell with. I started wondering myself and I actually ended up across the ocean. Wandered all the way from Holland to the United States. But the Israelites, as we find them down here, had to go all the way from Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb, to Mount Nabu. Mount Sinai is in current day Egypt, still is in Egypt. Mount Horeb is in current day Jordan. A journey of about 300, 350 miles. And most scholars estimate that this should have taken the Israelites 10 to 15 days. Instead of 10 to 15 days, it took them 40 years. Of those 40 years, two years were pre-spies, if you're familiar with the story. Spies were sent into the promised land, and they failed. And then God took them a little bit longer into the desert again to show them, uh, to show basically as a, because of their lack of faith. But two years were pre-spies, 38 years were post-spies. Now, because the first two years are a setup for the letter 38, I, spend, I will be spending a lot more time this morning on the first two years. As a matter of fact, the Bible spends a lot more time and a lot more verses on the first two years than the letter 38. It's going to be a little bit different today. We're going to be far into the sermon before I start pulling out the Bible. That's very unlike me. But uh, if you're starting to worry if, the, if I'm ever going to pull out the Bible, you're going to get a good dose of it. So don't, don't worry about that. But in order to give you a little bit better idea of what's going on with the people of Israel, I have taken the liberty to develop two characters, imaginative figures, Shimon and Shaul. I just happen to know a Shimon and a Shaul, good Jewish names. Not They don't resemble these people, but... They both lived during the time of the Exodus. And let me make this very clear to you, these are not biblical characters. These are truly products of my imagination. And the backdrop, against, uh, for, uh, the backdrop for this is it was a large group that marched from Egypt to the Promised Land. Scholars estimated that this group was anywhere between one and three million people. Now, we are familiar with the main characters of this story. We know Moses and Aaron and Miriam and Joshua and Caleb and some of the villains like Pharaoh and Korah and his associates and Balak. But there were a lot of ordinary folks in this group of people, this group of people that collectively made up God's nation, people like you and me. Now, Shaul could not believe the boldness of Aaron and Moses when they went over to ask the Pharaoh to let their people go. Many of Shaul's peers actually were very worried about the repercussions that this request might bring them. They were afraid that the Egyptians would take out their frustrations on them. But Shaul, on the other hand, was dying to leave Egypt. It was not just the fact that he wanted to leave slavery, although the work was definitely brutal, but he knew that their identity as a people was not that of slaves to the Egyptians, but as a people of God in a country that was promised to their ancestors a long time ago. You see, God had promised them that they would be a great nation of many people. God-chosen ones living in the land of Canaan. They would be blessed so that they, in return, could be a blessing to others. Now, unlike Pharaoh, Shaul did not need all the ten plagues to convince him that God was behind all this. He didn't need to see all ten of them to know that if God was for them, who could be against them. You see the crossing of the Red Sea had been the best day of Shaul's life. The sheer walls of water, the quietness as they moved on dry land. Shaul did not see the entire Egyptian army drown because Shaul was not looking back. He was looking forward to where they were going. Now, granted, the desert was not an easy place to be. It was cold during the nights, and the days were very hot. Hunger and thirst were a daily reality for them until God started sending manna. You see, every day, right when they would get up, it would be there. God never skipped a day except for the Shabbat, of course. But that was Saul's favorite day, a day to rest, not to travel, no working, just being with his family and thinking about God. And that was not very hard to do, to think about God on a daily basis, because they had the cloud, and they had the pillar. The cloud during the day, the pillar of fire during the night. When God moved, they moved and when God stopped, they stopped. Shaul had been very excited when Moses went up to the mountain to meet with God. He could see from distance the thunder and the lightning taking place, and he felt tempted to run to the foothills himself and to start climbing the mountain as well. But he remembered that God had forbidden for them to attempt to climb the mountain. And the fear of the Lord kept Shaul from sinning. Shaul remembered how long Moses was up there and how the people started grumbling. And the day that the people and Aaron came up with this golden calf was one of the worst days in Shaul's life. How could they possibly think that this golden calf was the one that liberated them out of Egypt? Was it not God who had bestowed the 10 plagues on the Egyptians? Who opened the waters for them? Was it God or was it this calf? Who turned bitter water into sweet water? Was it God or was it this calf? When Moses finally returned back to camp, he was able to restore order. And Sha'ul knew that the fact that they were still alive had nothing to do with themselves, but everything with the grace of God. And he found himself on his knees, thanking God for not bestowing the punishment on them that they deserved. And then one day, they were at a place called Kadesh Barnea. They were close to the promised land, and Moses asked for 12 volunteers to spy out the land. Shaul was the first one to ask for this position, but unfortunately Moses took somebody else from his tribe. Shaul could not wait to see this land of milk and honey, but he did have to wait. Forty days later, the spies came back, and they were carrying fruits, some of them so big, the grapes were so big that it took two guys to carry it. And when Shaul saw it, he ran back to his tent, started packing his stuff, strapped on his backpack, came back, and realized that at the very place where Moses was meeting with the spies, something had changed. He was ready to go, but he could see that the people once again had been questioning their God. Let me introduce to you a second character, Shimon. Shimon had been excited as well when they left Egypt. Seemed like a good idea to him. Making bricks was long and hard work, and there was no arguing that the workload had gotten heavier and more difficult, and that the guards had gotten more strict over time. The way out of Egypt had been a spectacle, to say the least. God has displayed his power and his might by means of the ten plagues, and deep in his heart, Shimon Shimon was the most happy with the last of the 10 plagues. Because 30 years earlier, he had lost his son son, by decree of Pharaoh, when all young Jewish baby boys had to be killed. And for him, this was payback. On the way to the Red Sea, Shimon had a hard time keeping up the pace. His knee, which he had injured, a couple of decades before in the job-related accident really started to bother him. It was such a struggle for him to keep up with the group that he barely even noticed that they crossed the Red Sea on dry land. They had been in the desert for weeks now. And Shimon's knee had swollen to the point that he really started to lose strength. He didn't eat as well either as he used to be. The thirst was the one thing that was going on and on in his mind. mind. And even though it was hard for him to... Hold on one second. He started to lose strength. Sorry about that. But he started to lose strength because of the fact that thirst was on his mind. And even though Moses had led them time after time to places of water, the further they went into the desert, the more worried Shimon became. Another reason why he was not eating so well was the fact that he was eating the same thing day after day after day. You see, the excitement that he had felt the first time when he found the manna after he opened his tent early in the morning started to fade away after eating it for days and days and weeks and weeks. And all he could think about right now was the food that his wife used to cook for him in Egypt. Her stew was his favorite with leeks and onions and garlic. Shimon had started to share his frustrations with others around him in the group. And since misery loves company, he quickly found a lot of people who were as fed up as he was. You see, they also had a hard time with the travels. They ranged from the elderly and the physically disabled to young families with young children for whom it became increasingly more difficult to explain to the children why they had to get up again and walk for miles and miles and miles through the desert sand. On top of that, they also had to deal with snakes and fire and a plague in the camp. Now Moses had told them that this was the result of their complaining, that this was the way that God was disciplining them. But Shimon did not buy that. Wasn't God supposed to be on their side? Were they not his people? How could a good God do such a thing to his people? What was the purpose of it all? And more importantly, when would it end? Moses had told them that they were on their way to Canaan, a land that God supposedly had promised hundreds of years before to their ancestor Abraham. Shimon questioned this promise. Why did God not speak directly to him? Why could he not promise him the same thing as he had promised Abraham? Why did God only speak through Moses? Was Moses trying to use God for his own purposes and his own goals? Because of his pain and his frustrations, Shimon started to resent the pillar and the cloud. And every day when they had, every time when they had set camp, finally when his knee would get some rest, the pillar would move again. And he would have to pack up all his belongings, get the entire family ready, and tread for miles and miles in the desert sand. And on one particularly difficult day, Shimon had had enough. Why did we ever leave Egypt? I want to go back to Egypt. Even dying here in the desert sand sounds more appealing to me than continuing this madness. Now, why these two stories? You know that normally I stick very close to the biblical story. This morning I have taken some liberty with the creation of Shaul and Shimon. Two people, both going through the same things. Many of their experiences were similar. And they were real. But their outlook on life and their outlook on God in particular was completely different. Shimon wanted to go back to Egypt and even preferred to die in the desert rather than to continue on to the promised land. Shaul, on the other hand, knew what God had promised Abraham, and he saw God delivering on his promises. And he believed that God would stop at nothing to bring his promise to fruition. So what is the difference between these two men? You see, Shimon let his circumstances shape his faith. Shimon let his circumstances shape his faith, while Shaul let his fate dictate how he saw and he interpreted the world around him. And these two stories are not that much different, right, than the stories that you and I go, to, go through. I am sure that in this group of people, there are a couple of Shimon's. As a matter of fact, I think that at one point or another we all feel like Shimon every now and then. When things are not going easy, when life is hard, when things like health and financial hardship, addiction and loneliness and struggles with your family are starting to really wear you down. When you start to wonder if God just doesn't care or if he's altogether unable to do anything about your circumstances at all? When you feel like you're treading this giant sand hill and you're getting close to throwing in the towel, and just like the worship song team just sung, we start painting pictures of Egypt, leaving out, obviously, what it lacks But the future feels so hard, and we do want to go back. So the question for us this morning is how to be a Shaul rather than a Shimon. How to let our faith dictate how we see and we interpret the world around us rather than letting the circumstances shape our faith. Now the answer to this question is given by this fellow named Moses, as he is sometimes referred to. In Exodus 32. But picture this. We're at the end of Moses' life right now. And he is giving a speech or a series of sermons to the next generation of Jews. These are the people that did not see the crossing of the Red Sea nor the ten plagues. As a matter of fact, of the people who went through that, only three people are left at this point in time, Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. And Moses himself will not even make it into the Promised Land. As a matter of fact, he will die before they cross the Jordan River. So picture this. Moses is old. He's an old man. He has led his people for 40 years through the desert. He has walked and he has talked with God. He has spoken with him face to face, the Bible says. And he is now trying to prepare a new generation of people as they go into the promised land. And he tells them, in order for you to be like Shaul, in order for you to let your faith help you interpret the way you see the world and how you live. You need to do the following. The first thing that he points out to them is to treasure the things that God has done for you. Let's take a quick look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 31 to 38. It will be on the screen as well, so you can just read along there if you, if you want to. Ask now about the former days. Long before your time, from the day God created men on earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for Himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by miraculous signs? And by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm. Or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides Him, there is no other. From heaven, He made you hear His voice to discipline you. On earth, He showed you His great fire and you heard his words from out of the fire. Because he loved your forefathers and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you, and to bring you into their land to give it to you for an inheritance as it is today. Remember what God has done for you. Remember how he has spoken to you. Now, there's many different ways you can do this. You can do this by means of journaling, writing a diary. If you're artsy, you can create physical objects. You can be writing in your Bible or you can share your story with others. You see, my call to a deeper level of ministry is in my Bible, with verses, with dates, with feelings, and with affirmations. So I will not forget. And I sometimes go back to it, especially during those times when I feel like I'm wandering in my own desert. The second thing that Moses suggests to the people is to stay focused on what really matters, to stay focused on what really matters. We skip uh, two chapters. Go to Deuteronomy uh, Deuteronomy 6, 10, and 11. And he says there, when the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, it is interesting that Moses tells this group who has been wandering for 40 years to the desert that it is not just their discomfort in the desert, not just their pain and agony and struggles and the heat and the thirst that they should fear in regards to their relationship with God, but that comfort and abundance offer their own set of challenges in our relationship with and our devotion to God. The very thing that Shimon and many of us are longing for is exactly the thing that Moses warns against. You see, many of us find ourselves in this spot. America is an obscenely rich country. Work and you will have abundance, and who needs God when you already have everything, right? But for those of us who are struggling, who do identify with Shimon, who have fallen victim to their circumstances, and who are allowing those circumstances to shape their faith, the answer to finding joy and peace does not lay in an absence of your problems. hardships but in the presence of God himself. Two weeks ago I got to travel to Guatemala on a work mission trip and if you want to hear more about what I did down there you're more than welcome to talk to me after uh, after the service but um, I was there with a customer of ours who has a daughter who in a very real sense was the reason for us to even be there in the first place. Her name is Rebecca she's 22 years old. And a while ago, she was diagnosed with a disease called chronic fatigue disorder. And talking to her and her dad, it sounded like she went through a really dark, difficult time. And during this time, she started a blog called Life Beyond the Window, since in a very real sense, she was trapped in her own body. A couple of months ago, she started her road to recovery. But she admits that during these times, she often stalls and wonders if she is truly healed. What if the disease comes back? What if she is just experiencing a temporary recovery? What if? What if? What if? And in answer to her own question, she writes on her blog the following. It's written out of the perspective of God, but it's called Trust in Me. I think it is up there. Hopefully, and it says this, the farther you roam along paths of unbelief, the harder it is to remember that I am with you. Anxious thoughts branch off in all direction, taking you further and further away from awareness of my presence. You need to voice your trust in me frequently this simple act of faith will keep you walking, up down, walking along straight paths with me. Trust in me with all your heart, and I will make your paths straight. Stay focused on what really matters. The third thing that Moses points out to these guys as they're entering the promised land is, is it's kind of more of a warning, but he says, don't think that your success is based on your own accomplishment. Don't think that your success... Is based on your own accomplishment. Deuteronomy 9, I think this one is not up there, if you want to read along with me, I'm in, uh, in chapter 9 verses 4 to 7, but let me read this to you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, talking about the enemies of the nation of Israel, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of the, these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of their land, but account on the, of the wickedness of those nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Three times. Three times. It's not your righteousness. And this warning from Moses really hits me, really cuts me to the heart, because I often tend to overestimate my role and underestimate God's. For example, the well-being of my family, I see as a direct result of my devotion to them. I provide. I take care of them. I enable them. I lead them. I, I, I. But you see, this perspective, whether things are going well with my family or absolutely not, is a losing proposition. And Moses reminds us and reminds me that success is not based on my accomplishment, but on his righteousness. The fourth thing that he points out to the Israelites is maybe one of the things that we might have the most difficult grasping. But he is saying that defined discipline is as much part of God's plan for you as any other way that God expresses his grace to you. Now, that's a hard thing to, fath- to fathom, that divine discipline is actually a grace of God. It's especially difficult for us to deal with that if we think that God is predominantly interested in our happiness and in our comfort. As a parent, we would never make this mistake, right? I mean, we clearly do not see our role in raising our kids as to cater to their every want. We know that if we do that, the consequences of their character development would be grave but yet so often we treat God this way. But the reality is, and I want you to hear this, is that God is far more concerned about your holiness than about your happiness. He's far more concerned about your character than he is about your comfort. You see, the Israelites were to be a set-apart people, different than the other people, Pointing the surrounding nations to a holy God. That still is God's goal. You see, our salvation and our redemption are not just brought about for us to enjoy, God always looks beyond His people. The Israelites were to be blessed so that they, in return, could be a blessing to others. In their talking, in their walking, in their doing, they were to glorify God. They were to be a special nation, different from the others, one worthy of God's presence. People in the other nations complained. People in the other nations were never satisfied, no matter how good the circumstances were. People in the other nations got jealous. God's nation had to be different. Because God's nation was to reflect the very character of God. That was their role, and that is our role as a church, as a people of God as well. God will discipline us if we start losing focus of that. It's never his first option. Discipline is never his first option. But after asking, after suggesting, after commanding, and after begging at times, he will resort to discipline. Deuteronomy 8, Moses writes, Be careful to follow every commandment that I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. To teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Now, if you think that this is just an Old Testament way of looking at things, let me take you to Hebrews chapter 12. It's up on the screen as well starting verse 6, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? And if, if, you, are not a, if you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we all have had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. If you have never experienced divine discipline, the writer to the Hebrew says, you really have to question your sonship. And the last thing that Moses says is this, be familiar with God's promises and how he already has fulfilled many of those. In, the, in Deuteronomy 35, 34, Moses is brought up to the highest point, to Mount Nebu. And it says that that Moses climbed Mount Nebu from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. And there the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev and the whole region of the Valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Soar, Then the Lord said to him, this is the land that I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. You see, the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, neither one of these saw this come to fruition. It was Moses, and he did not even get to enter it. But as he stood on the mountain, he was the one who got to see it. The promise that God made to Moses, Joshua was the one who got to see it. The promise that God made to David about an eternal kingdom, he did not get to see that. Jesus' disciples did, and we did. You see, we serve a faithful God who promises life everlasting, forgiveness of sins, sanctification The Holy Spirit, peace and joy, healing, both physically and spiritually, love, and many, many, many more things. Now, we might not see this. Our experiences might tell us something completely different. But the promise still stands from from a God who never breaks them and who will be with us always. Let's pray. Lord, it's, uh, as we are doing life, often we tend to get caught up by the things that are happening to us. We know about you, but we don't always know you. We have heard the stories, but somehow they have not become very applicable to our lives. And Lord, we don't want to be people that are wondering like the people like the people of Israel were. Lord, 40 years in the desert is an awful long time, but the reality is that often if we look back on our lives, there's not much to show for either. I don't say this to, to put a guilt trip on anybody, but if we just think about what our life would look like when we truly, truly live it for you, when we truly let you discipline us and guide us and direct us, Lord, how much different our lives would be. Father, this morning we come first of all with a heart of confession before you. And we admit that sometimes life has a tendency of swallowing us up. Lord, will you help us to refocus this morning? May we recognize the God who promised Abraham that he would be a father of many. And you did it, Lord. May we recognize the God who promised us a Savior, and you brought him. Lord, will you help us this morning to focus on you? Will you help us this morning to see you for who you really are? Will you help us, Lord, to treasure the things that you have done for us? Will you help us to stay focused on the things that matter? Will you help us, Lord, to see that our success is not based on the things that we do, but the way that we obey you? Lord, will you help us to embrace divine discipline as a grace of God? And Lord, will you help us to be familiar with your promises? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.